This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia, where you can now study single module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in a full university degree. To find out more, head to open.edu.au. This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking to someone I have known for quite a few years. His name is Steve Sammartino. He's an author, a public speaker, a former advertising strategy director, a technology strategist, a futurist, (laughs) whatever that is, and probably one of the smartest people in the world about predicting how technology will impact our lives. Now, Steve is quite well known in the media landscape, um, particularly here in Australia. He has his own radio show on ABC. He's written two books. Uh, And so, with this interview, I wanted to go behind the scenes and uncover the untold Steve Sammartino story. He tells us about how his upbringing impacted his career choices, about some of his weaknesses and failings, and about some of the crazy side projects that he's built, including how he built a car made of Lego that runs on air with a teenager from Romania. And let me just say before we get started that this interview is jam-packed with entertaining goodness. I've split it up into two episodes and what you're about to hear is part one of my discussion with the Sematron. Let's go and talk to him. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Steve Sammartino. I'm an author and I talk about technology and business and teach people how to use technology to make themselves future-proof. So, Steve, in preparing for this interview, I did a bunch of research. I mean, full disclosure, we know each other for, I don't know, many years. How long has it been? Maybe eight, Six, eight, eight years? Eight years, something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. Going back through the archives and trying to figure out who who is this man, um, where did he start out? Um <laughs> But before we kind of go all the way back there, I wanted to kick off with your working job title that you've got right now, mm. which is, uh, uh, there was kind of two of them that I came up across, um, technology strategist being one of them, or the yeah. other one is futurist. Yeah. So, maybe let's start off with, what the fuck is a futurist? <laughs> all right. Well, the futurist one is interesting. I've got a rule on on that, is that I don't really call myself that. Other people call me that, and they started to call me that. And- I mean, the truth is everyone's a futurist, right? Because we're all planning for tomorrow. But it's really, it really comes down to economics. So what I studied at university and what I've always had an interest in my entire life is economics. And economics is based on two things. It really is based on only two things. Human behavior, which doesn't change, and new technology, which facilitates human behaviors. If you put those two things together and you become a little bit more focused on tomorrow than today then that puts you in the realm of a futurist. And I'm just so interested in technology and how it changes business and revenue streams that I kind of get bundled into that future kind of category. And I guess my books have been about that as well. Maybe that's actually a nice segue to the other question I kind of started off with. What the fuck is a technology strategist? Well, it's the same thing as a futurist. They're the same thing. They're different words. They're synonyms for each other. Mm -hmm. So technology strategy is really about how do you embrace the new tools that are arriving so that you can solve people's problems, which is what business do. Every business solves a problem 
and get some sort of a benefit for it. Sometimes it's revenue and profit. Sometimes it's social good. But we basically solve people's problems using the tools of the day. Now, if you're using yesterday's tools, sometimes you get replaced because the new tools are always more efficient. And so the challenge for business and technology strategy is how do we move from the old tools while maintaining our revenue streams and embrace the tools of tomorrow? And this is where companies get broken down. And they get broken down because companies forget who to love. What they love is their infrastructure and their systems. They don't love their customers. They pretend to love their customers. <laughs> but what they no, really. They they love their systems and their profit. And and the customers are just this inconsequential thing in the middle that has to give us revenue. And so mm. the reason companies get disrupted, so many people don't know this got it's got nothing to do with the technology. They've got the money, they know about the technology, they know how it works, but they're just so in love with the system that made them profitable and big that they fall in love with yesterday. It's like a form of nostalgia. Mm-hmm is actually where disruption comes from. It's actually nostalgia. It's one of the strongest things in humanity. And they have a nostalgia for infrastructure. And also what happens is 9 out of 10 people in any big company have nothing to do with customers. They're serving people internally in the organization and serving the infrastructure. They serve the walls and the light switches and the electricity and the machine. No, I'm not joking. Like, I really mean this. Yeah. And anyone out there who works for a big company and, and in marketing especially, they'll know this. Mm. Yeah, the, all the red tape internally that you're trying to cut through. And it's interesting. No, uh, they're not trying to cut through the red tape. They're, they're using the red tape. They, they believe in the red tape. The red tape it. is their life. They're building red tape. They're making little, <laughs> they're, they're making effigies of red tape. That That's the point. The, the red tape is the point. Yeah. It's the irony is that they're so in love with and can't let go of the sunk cost of yesterday. That's another one. And you kind of playing off infrastructure versus customer, right? Customer yeah. is the future. Customer is tomorrow's dollar. That's right. Uh, and yesterday's dollar is the sunk cost of the infrastructure. What's today's dollar? Today's dollar is the same as yesterday's dollar generally, right? But what happens is there's two streams. If you get a new technology, it's like a fork in the river. Right, And usually what happens with any stream when it starts, it's usually small. And as it goes down the mountain, it gets bigger and wider. And the problem is usually when there's a fork in the river, right, the new stream is always thinner. And it's easy to believe that that stream will never be thicker than the other one. But the fork happened for a reason. Right, There was lower ground and the, and the new water found a way to go down. It's kind of like I'm using some biomimicry here. But usually today's dollar, even when there's that split, you can see a fork. That's the problem, is that usually the existential revenue or the system that's here today, even when a new technology arrives, it's really deceptive because the new one looks like it just can't compete and it won't compete. And even if it does, the revenue streams won't be there. But if you follow that new stream or certainly send some people down to follow that new stream, which is probably a better strategy, then you can always do better in business. And so this is the problem is that if you try and transition a business from old infrastructure to new infrastructure, it's almost impossible because you have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and, and say, oh, we're going to go for this small revenue stream and walk away from our current big one. But actually what you need to do is chase both at the same time, but you need to chase them independently in independent infrastructures. You know, the idea of a skunk works is the classic example, right? Don't try and change the company you've got actually chase the new revenue in a new building with new people by putting new resources around that in an autonomous strategic business unit. Mm-hmm. There you go, a little bit of SBU stuff, old old Porter <laughs> 1980s marketing strat for all you, all you strat heads out there. All right, well, 
let's not uh, let's not jump too deep into uh, into the economics and the and the entrepreneurship because I, I want to actually rewind the clock on Steve Sammartino sure. a little bit and kind of reveal some of the origin story because you're a radio professional, you're an author, you're quite present in the media here in in Australia, and so you're you're constantly telling predictions and and philosophies on where things are going, how technology is impacting our lives. But I kind of really want to give the behind the curtain view on Steve Sammartino in this interview because- You you did say that we've known each other for a while. Yeah, I I guess I want to give people an idea of where you've come from and how that's impacting the views that, that, um, that, that you're portraying today. So, let's rewind the clock a little bit. You wouldn't expect, you started your career in big corporate, right? You worked for Procter Gamble- you worked for Carlton United Breweries and you worked for Kraft. Boring, conglomerate, traditional companies get a good job in a big company after you go to school and do a degree, uh, get a nice house in the suburbs and live happily ever after. So, it was the perfect dream, right? Like, your parents well, would have been like, so proud of you. Yeah, right. It was their <laughs> dream. That's, that's the problem, right? So, I mean, I started that only because that was what you were meant to do, Right. Life was so linear. Now, I'm, I'm a generation older than you. We were right in the halcyon period of the industrial system just singing a beautiful song that if you follow certain rules, success or so-called success is yours, right? Go to school, get decent grades, work hard, get a job in a big company. You'll have above average income and you'll do well in life. And I followed those rules because, you know, my dad, he was a hardworking tradesman, didn't have the educational opportunities I had. He said, Steve, you got it. Yeah, you get in this corporate world. Life's good. You won't have to work hard. You'll get annual leave. You'll have all of these things. And he really encouraged me. And I believed him. Like, I believed him. And I don't think he meant it for anything bad. But he was an entrepreneur right from the start. And, you know, I was an entrepreneur too, except it got kicked out of me and I got shaped. I majored in economics and marketing at uni and I wanted to get a job in a big company and I did all those applications for the graduate positions and I got one. I was stoked, mate. Oh, I can't tell you how stoked I was. I thought, this is it. Seven years, I'll be a CEO and <laughs> I'll be on the cover of Business Review Weekly magazine, right? It doesn't exist. There yeah, you go. That tells that? you how the, yeah, right, what, what's that? <laughs> Shows you how the world's changed. Was that a, 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 a magazine? It was a magazine? magazine. It was a magazine, a business magazine. What's it that? Was the, it was the, what's that? It was the most <laughs> revered one, though. This was the one. And I remember it of the, the measly amount of money I had as a student. I would spend $70 a year subscribing to that, read mm-hmm. it page to page, cover to cover. It's like a podcast, but just. Right, uh, it kind of was. No, because this <laughs> in was. In a written the, form. No, right. This was the only place you could get you know, business insight and information. So I got this job and I remember day one, uh, the, the job, I went uh, on day one and I got a company car and I was all excited and everything. I remember the very first day going, geez, five o'clock, I've been here from eight to five. This is a long day. I don't know how much I like this. Day one, <laughs> day one, I was saying, I don't think I, like, I didn't want to say it out loud, but my subconscious was saying it to my head. It was saying, Steve, you don't like this. You don't want to work nine to five. This is not you. You can't do this. I've just gone from being a uni student, having six months off a year and working three days a week. Day one, I didn't like it. I did it for 13 years. Day one. I remember day one, I said to myself, I really don't like this that much. So what did I do? I stuck it out for 13 years. You know what? Telling people to stick it out, that is the worst advice in the world. If you hate it, you should move on. So, I, I did it despite myself. So, I was actually an entrepreneur way before that. The first startup I had was when I was 10 years old, an organic egg farm. I was making hundreds of dollars a week. You know, this is way back when that was a lot of money, right? Man, I should have stuck with that. I should have. No, seriously. I had a clothing company that I was doing at the part. I only went into this corporate thing because that was what you were meant to do. I was doing entrepreneurial ventures when I was a kid. 
You know, and then I, I, I had the organic egg farm, then I had the clothing company, and then I went into corporate and forgot all that. But you know what? It just bubbled up and bubbled up in the end. But I, I did the corporate round, and it, I did learn a lot. You learn a lot. And even in jobs that you hate, you learn a lot about what not to do as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But 13 years is a long time to do something that is not fulfilling. You know, it wasn't fulfilling because you end up playing this game where how good you are at what you do actually doesn't influence how well you do at it. Now, this, this, this is the thing that I think is disheartening in the corporate world is you could do a terrific job, but the person who gets promoted and who gets the benefits is the person who is liked the most. And I will have this argument with anyone in the free world who wants to have it. And the person who fits the profile and the culture of the organization has very little to do with, and certainly in marketing circles, how great your marketing strategy or any of that is. It's really how well you fit within the system. And that's how you do well. So you can be the greatest at your job, but what you need to be the greatest at is the political machinations. If you do well at that, then you'll get promoted. It's a popularity contest. It's it's, it's no different to grade six in the schoolyard. That's what the corporations (laughs) are. Forget the three-year economics degree. Just go stand out the side of a school. Actually, that'll look really weird. Don't do that. I take that back. (laughs) Do not do that. Watch a documentary, sorry, on- We'll we'll edit this bit out. No, keep it in. It's real. I'm telling people not to do it. Right? Watch schoolyard behavior. That's everything you need to know about humanity. Even Donald Trump and and uh, Kim John. By the way, he's got a very good St. Kilda haircut. If he was walking around Brunswick or St. Kilda, <laughs> his haircut is perfect for that. All right? Forget the, you know, the megalomania and the nuclear bombs. But I'll tell the you The original what, hipster. He, he has got the haircut. All right? He's very now. Yeah. So, that's what you need to watch because that's where the game is. It's not about being great at strategy, which by the way, they don't want you to have strategy, right? especially if it's a multinational corporation because your job is excellence in execution. You have to execute. No, it means do as you're told. They uh. didn't you. see that. See, this is where you need the book of business synonyms. Right, that's okay. what we really need. The book of marketing synonyms, excellence in execution. Do as we tell you, mate. Don't think, don't come up with a strategy. Just do what we can do this year to get to get the share price up so the CEO can get their bonus and everyone will live happily ever after. Yeah, and you wrote about this uh, in your recent book, The Lesson School Forgot, how schools basically are a factory um, yeah. for producing and beating the the innovation and intuition out of people. Of course you know, do as you're told. And then it manifests itself throughout corporations as well. Yeah, and this isn't by stealth. This isn't one of those conspiracy theories where people say, oh, you know, why people do this and it turned out that way. This was actually by design. Like, this is documented in history. What is school for? Well, we were sending six-year-olds down mines and so we cut this industrial deal where we said, look, what we're going to do is provide free public schooling. A lot of the jobs on the farms are going away and you're not going to be able to be a baker or a carpenter anymore because the guy making bread in the factory or tables in the factory will outcompete you so your kids can't do what you did. So we're going to design this thing called schools. There's going to be eight-hour shifts, just like the factory. We're going to teach kids to sit still for eight hours a day, right? And we're going to teach them the three hours writing, reading, and arithmetic so that they can become compliant industrial factory workers. And what we need to do is give you tests so you know all of the bits and you can't make a mistake because on a factory line, you can't collaborate. You have independent work that you need to do. And so it was to set up a mindset for people to man the industrial system. That's uh, quite a long game that they're playing. <laughs> you know, and you, but you know what? That's a really good point. It's a long game. When, when's the last time we saw any industrialists plan such a long game? You know, like Henry Ford, he used to grow his own sheep to make his seats out of the really? fabric. Oh, no, no, this, no, this is right. 
He owned acres of acres of farm that would go right through the supply chain. I mean, you're seeing some of that with the technology companies now who are investing in AI mm. and driverless cars, and you're seeing that conglomeratization of industry. But wouldn't it be nice if some of the CEOs running strategy within businesses were thinking about what does this business look like in 10 years rather than how do I get my bonus this year? Mm. That's a whole problem in itself, I think, and we probably can't solve that no, no, right no, now, no. but like that, that stifles innovation more than anything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think CEOs are worth what they earn, but that's a separate gripe. Let's talk about innovation for a moment. Um, so, after you finished in, uh, in corporate world, you, you, you got fed up with the system and, and, and drinking the Kool-Aid and, and doing as <laughs> you were told, right? Yeah. And, and then you went full swing into the other direction you, and you, yeah. and you uh, started a startup. Yeah, and I quit with nothing to go to. Yeah. And I turned up at work on a Friday and I said, I've had enough, I'm quitting today. And the boss said to me, oh, you've got to give four weeks notice. I said, <laughs> oh, I, don't, I actually don't have to. It was last time I looked, I'm not going to get sent to jail. He said, no, you've got to give four weeks notice. And I said, Monday will come and I won't be here. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, you've got, to, you've got to turn up. I said, mate, good luck, enjoy life. Like, <laughs> and, um, and I went and I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I, I did do a startup first, which was, and this is my great unlearning. I launched a beverage company and the beverage company was like the opposite of a Red Bull. It was an anti-stress drink. Mm. And, um, I invested in some machinery and did some stuff and it was a real failure. It was a real stuff up. I, I won't bore anyone with the details, but, and the reason it failed is because I had big company thinking. I had lost my entrepreneurial ideas and flair and entrepreneurialism is about making something out of nothing whereas big companies is about budget and investing and forward planning. If you're in a startup, what you're trying to do is invent an infrastructure. If you're in a big company, what you're trying to do is leverage an infrastructure. And I got those two things mixed up in my first startup. I ended up losing a lot of dough. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I lost my shorts. If anyone finds them out there, please send them back to me. <laughs> so, I like, I really hurt myself bad. And then um, I was... That was like a year and a half after I left corporate. I had no money. I had nothing. I was zero. Yeah, what's it like? What's the feeling like at that moment? It's refreshing. Oh, my God. It was probably the greatest like six months of my life. Once you've got nothing, it's fantastic. Really? Yeah, zero responsibility. The other way is up, baby. It's like it's good. That's what you. That, that's the only time you feel totally free. Like, what, you know, if you're carrying money, you're carrying this financial weight of infrastructure in your mind everywhere you go, right? When you've got nothing, what, what, what's there to lose? It felt freeing. I was like, okay, cool. What can I do now? Yeah, you know, in a country like Australia, we're fortunate enough that you're probably not going to go hungry. I mean, I had to move back into my old bedroom with my parents. That's the level of zero that I was at. And this is when um, Web 2.0 was happening. And then I, that's when I did Rentoid.com. And Rentoid.com was just like, I thought, oh, well, eBay for renting. Um, I was really into the idea of the access economy, technology giving us access to resources. And for a while, the startup did pretty well. You know, I got featured on TV and I had a lot of members. I had a few million dollars worth of items for rent on there. And, you know, I was making a reasonable income. And then it fell off a cliff um, after about two years. So it went from, you know, starting to, you know, I was getting offered. I got, I got offered a few million dollars to, to sell it out. I had offers for venture capital. I was very much of the bootstrap mentality though. Yeah. I don't, because I think that if you accept venture capital, you actually become an employee. Mm. And a lot of people don't yeah, realize do. that. Yeah. right? So I didn't want to be an employee. That was the whole reason I left. And I'd rather have a reasonable business 
where I control my destiny rather than a big business where someone else controls me. Otherwise, you just you might as well be a CEO again at a big corporate, right? So I did rent. I did pretty well, but I missed some pivots. I really am embarrassingly could have made lots and lots of money. Yeah, well, I was about to ask you, uh, what did it feel like um, having a business that fell off a cliff and, uh, and, and you know, only a few months earlier having a few million dollars on offer? Yeah, well, that's right. It doesn't, doesn't feel that good. Um, actually, it feels great now. Why? Because it's it's actually a good pub story, and that's yeah. all you really. You know, the only things we really accumulate in life is our story, because that's the only thing that can live beyond our time is our story, right? Yeah, the legacy. You can, yeah, right. You can have as many assets as you want, as many zeros as you want in the bank. The one thing you take with you, and others remember, they don't say he had a nice car, she had a nice house. Yeah. They say, oh, I remember when Jeff did this, or Steve did that, or the person wrote this book or something. It's your story and your legacy is the only thing you keep, right? So what happened was it was doing really, really well. And then we had Alibaba, a whole lot of things that used to rent out that were expensive went through the floor in terms of pricing. So when I first launched, the flat screen TVs were $20,000. People forget, right? And by the time I finished with Rentoid, they were $1,000. I used to rent those out for, mm. you know, uh, you know, big sporting events and yeah, you know, a whole lot of stuff I used to rent out just got really cheap and, and so really like at a thousand dollars, it's not worth renting that's it now. The point, just, that's the point. That's the point. There's too much friction mm. for things to rent to be successful. They need to be expensive. Now I'll tell you about the pivots that I missed before I fell off a cliff. People were renting out their cars to become drivers on Rentoid. Right, now it's on the Wayback Machine. If you go back to the Wayback Machine in 2008, <laughs> which is an internet archive for the listeners out there, where you can see any website from the past, it's called the Wayback Machine. And so just just on what you were what, what you were saying, so you kind of invented Uber. I didn't invent it. The, the audience did. No one invents anything. See, mm. people say they invented it. No, the audience invents it, and sometimes you aggregate it with technology. Right. So you no are, one invents right, anything. Right. So, but I'll tell you, it's even worse than you that. You aggregated right? Uber. So people were putting their cars up for rent and themselves as drivers, and I was worried about the legality. So I removed them from the website. How clever am I, right? So that's fantastic, everyone out there, right? And then. Uh, Here's a better one. People were renting out their spare bedrooms on Rentoid.com. Oh, yeah. 2007. Right. They're the two pivots that I missed, my favorite billion-dollar pivots. Mm -hmm. Talk about having an F up. There's there's a couple. (laughs) Right. My wife said, you should be a futurist. You're just ahead of your time. (laughs) So that's what she said. And so- um, And now it comes full circle. (laughs) Now it comes full circle. Uh, And so- I was early on a couple of those things. I knew the access and sharing economy would happen. But the mistake that I made is that I was horizontalizing. I was trying to capture too many categories at once. And if you look at most successful businesses, they might end up broad, but they always start skinny. So you need to start in one simple vertical solving a singular problem. My problem is people don't have a rent anything problem. They have a I need transport problem or I need a room problem or I need a jumping castle for a party problem. And so while I was close to where the innovation would be, I wasn't close enough and I wasn't mature enough or, or knowledgeable enough to have a skinny proposition that I could build out from. Yeah. Do you think Rentoid would have been more successful had you gone, I'm going to rent uh, hardware for you know DIYers, so drills yes, and something. saws and whatever, right? You choose a certain vertical and then yes. you expand to something similar, you know, um, what's kind of similar to that, you know, kitchenware or whatever, right? right? right. Like, I, and- I think houses and cars, you know, that type of area, because renting only really works with high- value items otherwise the revenue clip is too low yeah like high value short usage high value short usage but also the problem with renting is you have four transactions not two it's not like you buy and then you pick up it's you buy you pick up you get you come back there's 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 a lot of friction right yeah and if there's that amount of friction 
then you need to work out a, a way to reduce that friction or to get that friction paid for, which mm-hmm. Uber did that really well with their payment system. That was, and the fact that you didn't have to be in a particular pace. So the two things they did with removing friction was they removed the friction of payments and they removed the friction of location. And that were their two core benefits, actually. Yeah, we'll come to you and we'll just charge it straight within the app. Yeah. And that's why they worked really well. And then finally, after Rentoid, you took this crazy move and went into advertising. Yeah, that was unexpected. You know how it came about. And this is where like your network is really important. The people you know, really important that you respect and help people whatever you can in your business. So I did Rentoid. I actually, I sold it to a public company, which was they just bought the back end tech. So I actually did have an exit where I sold it to a public company and that was okay. Not, it was, the, f- not the few million that you'd been offered. No, no. Yeah, but it, was, but it was, wasn't bad, right? Yeah, it, was, sure. it was okay. So um, I, I sold it and got out. And then a colleague of mine was the CEO of Grey Group, which is part of WPP, the world's biggest ad media sort of company. And he said, come in. And corporate said, no, nah, I don't want to do corporate. He said, no, nah, it's going to be different this time, Steve. And and no, no and he did to his credit, he, he tried to do it really well. What he said was, we're going to come tried in. Tried to. He tried. No, he tried. The system beat him in the end. Yeah. The system beat him. He was the CEO and we had to deal with the um, regional general managers. But he said, what we want to do is instead of making ads for companies, we want to build platforms, technology platforms, and ways that people can use our uh, platforms to advertise on top of and do startups within um, within the ad agency that we can lease out. We can lease out our properties instead of just selling singular services to um, the advertisers. So I went in there heading up technology and strategy. It actually was a really good time because in that time, that's when I really had the space and you know, getting paid on someone else's dime to really delve deep into technology and strategy. So that's when I started to mash up what I noticed in startups and running my own bootstrap startup and you know, VC and all that kind of stuff, big corporate, and then the two together. And you know, for three years there, I spent a lot of time thinking and writing and putting all those thoughts, encapsulating them, trying to build a new system within an old system. Yeah, you were you were blogging and tweeting and all kinds of actually the the early blogs that you were kind of writing almost in a way were like the preface to you writing books. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and my blog actually started when I started the first failed beverage company. So that's been going since I think two thousand and six. So early on in the blogging, and blogging doesn't get the traffic it used to now because of other social forms. But that's where I learned to write. I've written more than three million words on my blog. Yeah. And, at and you one still are. You and posted I still something write. this week. Yeah, I posted something this week. But basically, for three years, I did a blog post every single day. At one point, the blog was getting about 30,000 readers a month you know, from around the world. Yeah, wow. But, but, you know, it's really cool because it actually forces you to think when you write. You have an idea. And you, yeah, know what we let out, you know what we do with our ideas? We let them escape. I stop, I stop and put in my phone, I write in my notepad every single time when I have an idea because I might come back to it later. But if you let it go, then it's gone. And the idea of writing something down and publishing it, it's you're shipping a product. As much as it doesn't sound like you're shipping a product, it goes in the market and it gets real world feedback and there's something beautiful about that. And so it helped me, I think, see the world better from a technology perspective and a business perspective and you know, sort of pull my thoughts together. So the the blo- out of all the things I've done in my life, in a business perspective, if I had to put anything at the top of the list that has created more value for my life than anything, it's blogging by a long way. It's it's not even close. Yeah, I think I would say the same, but with with podcasting, that the 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 this has done so much for me in terms of figuring out how to crystallize thoughts and frame questions and and have 
interesting conversations with people, um, the, the network that I've been able to build through doing this show has been phenomenal. You know, I've, I've had access to meet with people that I have no right to just because but you do have, have a, a right company. To, but you do have a right to see this is the thing people believe they have no right to the sale well, what right have you got to do anything same right anyone else has right you just say i'm doing it don't ask for permission and just say i'm doing the podcast i've got as much right as anyone actually instead of saying i have no right to do this you know what's great is saying i have as much right as anyone yeah maybe maybe have no right to was the wrong terminology but like i i've had the ability to meet with people who would not have met with me otherwise, I think, is is maybe a better no, way to describe it. No, I get it. So, without the product, if you just said, hi, I'm Adam, do you want to catch up for a coffee? Oh, yeah, yeah I can, but I'm kind of busy, whatever. Yeah. If you've got a podcast, see, you know why? I mean, this is really interesting. It comes down to fundamentals of marketing. You're creating value first. You know, when you say, I want to meet someone, well, no, no, you're putting your hand out, right? But if you say, hi, do you want to come on my top 20 podcast? Yep. Like you did in the email when even though we know each other, you still sent me the email. Yeah. And I liked it. I dug it. I'm like, yeah, I want to be on the top 20 podcast. I mean, I would come on if it was yeah, <laughs> if it was um, bottom 20, right? Yeah. I, would come, I would come on anyway. But I dug that, right? Because straight away, you're giving me value, right? And this is what we do wrong. You know, this is like uh, I try and tell people, everyone's an entrepreneur. Like you're, an entre- you're born an entrepreneur and it gets kicked out of you, right? And, and the idea that um, if you think of an – of yourself as an entrepreneur, you're thinking, how can I give someone more value? How can I be more? If I'm the CEO of my personal services corporation, right, the CEO, even if you work for a company, you're the CEO of your personal service corporation with just one big customer. Yeah, right? so this we've talked about this for, for a couple of years. Um, this is this theory that you have that everyone's an entrepreneur at heart, but they just have one client and that That's client right. is their employer. That's right. So you're always an entrepreneur. The question is, do you have one or many customers? If you're an em- employee, you have one important customer. If you think as an entrepreneur, instead of saying, how do I get the promotion and I get a pay rise, you're thinking, ooh, how do I improve my product to become more premium to justify a higher price or to redistribute myself in a higher end retailer who will pay a higher price for me with better customers? Right? That mindset shift is life-changing. Yeah. Life-changing. Then you're saying, how do I invest in myself? How do I improve my packaging? How do I improve my product? How do I improve my longevity? You know, how do I do all of these things if you're an entrepreneur? But if you're an employer, you're putting your hand out saying, well, is me. What can you give me? Yeah, I, right? I work hard. I work hard. I deserve this. No, no, no. You, you know, like that, that, that's the shift that we need. Yeah, totally. Let's, um, we're almost at today in the, in the Steve Sammartino origin story timeline. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> but I'm loving these uh, these side story tangents. So while you're at Gray, you you were kind of doing some skunk works and stuff like yep. that within within the company. But you also had this this uh, little side project, which you called the Super Awesome Micro Project. Yes, it wasn't that micro. No, it was it pretty super out, though. It turned out to be the Super Awesome Macro Expensive Project. Um, <laughs> basically, so what was it? Well, I met this teenage boy on the internet. Sounds super dodge, but basically, You've, <laughs> no, it's, it's that's not how next, it sounds. That's right? the next soundbite for this yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This is the next soundbite. No, they're good soundbites. They're real. It's true. Raul Wider. He sent me a Skype request saying, "Hi, I'm building a spaceship." Now you don't get Skype requests like that every day, do you? So I clicked accept. Yeah. Right. And he where, basically, where did he find you? Well, he was stalking people on the internet. He actually wasn't even looking for me. The true story is that he was trying to be connected with Esther Dyson. She's a venture capitalist who runs ED Ventures. 
and she was on the board of WPP and I met her through my position at Grey at some international events and stuff and she was she was pretty cool and smart and he knew that I was connected with her. He stalked me on like Twitter and LinkedIn and he was trying to get connected with her and once he connected with me, he asked me if I'd invest in his rocket ship startup and I said, look, no, thanks. It's a wonderful gesture and I like I love that you've put like me rockets. up with it. Yeah, I like rockets <laughs> and yeah, it's nice to be thought of, as, you know, in, in the Elon kind of yeah, yeah, realm, yeah. which I'm clearly not. And uh and then he said, oh, can you connect me with Esther Dyson? I said, I'm not just going to just spam her with, hi, I met this guy on the internet <laughs> who sent me a Skype request. And um, anyway, he just wouldn't go away. Every time I'd turn on my Skype, he'd be like, whoop, and he'd be there like, you know, <laughs> hi, Steve. <laughs> and I just got talking to him and I found out he was a really smart guy. And we did we did a little um, project first where we put a Lego space shuttle into Earth orbit. Um, using like one of those old 1970s weather balloons and a GPS and a GoPro camera for like under a thousand bucks. It was an incredible project that yeah. we did. And I remember sending him the money, saying to my wife, I said, oh, I've just sent this kid in Romania a thousand dollars for this project. She's like, what? I said, yeah, I'm probably not going to hear from him again. It's a pretty good chance, but good pub story, right? Yeah. Good pub, because I'm yeah, all yeah, about yeah. collecting good pub stories. <laughs> Turns out, but he was in it for the long haul, right? He's like long he, he, was, he is. He's still in it for the long he haul. Was, he is a long hauler. He was like, you know, buttering you up for like yes. weeks and weeks, weeks before and he weeks. asked weeks. for he money. Earned, that's what I actually did a pro rider allocation. Yeah. So look, he's only earned eighteen dollars an hour, so he's not ripping me off that much. <laughs> I worked it out the number of hours we'd chatted, right? So it was like he earned it, right? Yeah. And and he taught me some stuff about tech along the way. So we did this project. It was rad. It went viral. I even did an interview on ABC News Twenty Four about it. Yep. You know, it was it was crazy. And then he wanted to do another Lego project. He said, let's build a full-size Lego car. So, relax with the Lego. Oh, wait, wait, hang on. A full-size Lego car. Yeah, so the Super Awesome Micro Project. We're back to that. So, here's what it is. It's a full-size car built out of Lego with an engine made of Lego and the engine runs on air and the car's drivable. Mm -hmm. And we did it. We did it. We built it. You made this crazy, super awesome micro project. So, yeah. So, what happened was... um, Let's maybe talk about how you funded it first, and then you can tell me how you yeah. made it. Okay. Well, he came back, and I was working at Gray at the time. Now, this, this is a, this is an example of a company not understanding the shift in business models. I went to the CEO. I said, look, I'm going to do this project with this kid. Um, we'll make a viral video. I mean, when you explain that to someone, if you can pull it off, clearly it's going to go viral, right? And it's had more than 10 million views on YouTube alone, let alone all the people who have ripped it off. It's probably had 100 million views. I went to the agency and I said, "Look, I've costed up this Lego. It's going to be about twenty grand in Lego. Granted, it's not. It's not granted. It's <laughs> not a so usual expenses claim. It's, it's not a usual. Well, it's five hundred thousand pieces of Lego. Yeah, it's not a usual expenses. Lego's claim. not cheap either. So no, yeah. no, that's right. And and so uh, I said, "Oh, can you fund us in this? If we pull this video off, it'll be amazing. It'll be a you know, it'll go viral. We'll, we'll win millions of dollars worth of business for a twenty thousand dollar investment." Yep. Now, the CFO and the CEO said, oh, we can't invest in that because our business model doesn't work that way. We have to get clients and then we'll get a client. They give us money and then we get money and then we make an ad and then the leftover money, that's our margin and that's how we make money. You should know that, Steve, blah, blah, blah. They gave me the traditional line. Yep. Because, again, what did they the love? The corporate line. What did they love? They love their infrastructure. The systems. And they love their systems more yeah. than they love the truth of the world they're actually living in. Yeah. Right? So, I said, all right, I'll go and do it myself. So, I thought, geez, I'm not going to really just throw 20K at this in case it doesn't work. So I just crowdfunded on Twitter. I sent a tweet out at 12.07 a.m. And that's why I got funded because it was after midnight and all good things on the internet happen after midnight. <laughs> that's my policy. <laughs> I'm serious. You get on the internet tonight after midnight, you're going to see good things. Well, I think it depends on what website you're on. but well, That's right. But <laughs> so long as it's after midnight, it'll be good. 
right? So, um, so basically, look, a lot of the people in the hacker and tech community and advertising community in Australia at a few internationals, but I like got the money in a couple of days. People just threw it into my PayPal account. I'm not joking, like 500 bucks. Some people said, oh, I don't even know what the project is, whatever, that's fine. Actually, I didn't tell anyone what it was, only if they rang me up because I wanted to keep it a secret. Yeah. And then I like it had this whole secret thing going the whole way through building it. I don't know if you remember. And then, yeah, um, I remember. Yeah, and, and uh, then we spent 18 months building it. Raul did most of the building. And I did some design and marketing and organizing and paying and went <laughs> way over paying. budget. Dude, went over budget. 63000 bucks over budget. So, it cost $83,000. Yeah, like yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, I know. For a Lego. I mean, look, it's a Lego car. I, I, cool. I have no idea how much a Lego car costs to make. Well, apparently well, well, $83,000. No, exactly, because <laughs> there ain't that many examples, right? I mean, there's a few others out there, but it's the only drivable one that I'm aware of. And so, it cost me way more, but it was worth every cent. And what? So you just funded the rest yourself? I just paid for it. Yeah. I just well, you know, why? it was one of those. Why? No, why, why, why? it wasn't like I did a, wrote a big check. This sure. is this is how you this is how you go broke in life, kids. What, <laughs> just like what chip away, chip, chip away. away. He'd just keep bringing me and up. And was just like, mate, put I ended it in up. the bank account, and then he's like, I'm about to like you know make my flee to um, oh. the the Mediterranean. Look, and- it, it included that most of that wasn't Lego. It, it included shipping the car, which originally got built in Romania, right? Shipping it, air freighting it air freighting it from Romania to Australia in a container. It included yeah. his flights, included me bringing him to Australia, lived in my Why house. Why couldn't you just fly there? Because I wanted him, I promised, I said, if you can build this, right, you're going to meet all the people that fund you and we're going to fly you to Australia and we're going to do it, right? <laughs> in, in, and I keep my promises, man. In a weird twist of fate, it probably would have been cheaper to fly all the people that funded it over to no, Romania. Actually, actually, that's funny. Actually, that's around. you know what? That would have been rad. We should have done that. That would have been so good. Road trip. <laughs> Road trip. And uh, and so we uh, yeah, it cost me heaps of money, way more than I thought. But it was just money here, hundred. They had to buy him new laptops, and then the GoPro camera broke. And oh, we need glue, glue. What did five hundred dollars worth of glue? And then you know, like, and then what happened was when we flew him and it here. Um, like I even and Raul knows he's a trivia guy. Even like he had like a, a tooth he had to get pulled out. So I paid six hundred dollars in dentistry at one point. I mean that's <laughs> these are the unexpected expenses you get in the world of hacker projects, right? So he was living in my house for a long time. Um, what did your wife think about? Yeah, that? it was tough. It was tough. <laughs> and a couple of the other patrons because I called them the Samp patrons. Super awesome micro S-A-M-P, project. Right, yep. Samp. And if you still um, hashtag super awesome micro project, you'll see all the tweets and everything. So he stayed at some of their houses and. And we, we split it up while he was – because he was here for a long time. and But when it arrived, the car, it fell apart. The whole thing, we opened up the box and just saw a big bag of Lego. That's like, <laughs> that, that's all it was, dude. We had to rebuild the thing. And we worked like for six weeks, 19 hours a day, basically doing this – getting this car ready for a drive. And we drove it you know, in the suburban streets of Melbourne and did the filming. And Jeez, I tell you what, that was a hard project, man. It was 18 months, over time, over budget, and I was just – thrilled you know when you get to the end of a project you just go i'm just i'm just i don't even care i'm just i just want i want out of this want project. <laughs> but but now in hindsight you look back with fondness right what was the result of that project because you spent a lot of money on it a huge amount of time it was a massive investment just cognitively as well so yeah like, yeah right why well i wanted to do it as a project to prove what's possible in the modern world right that was the primary thing so here we have a hundred year old toy a pneumatic engine yeah, hundred year old uh, technology that's never been used in cars for obvious reasons. Um, 
you know, crowdfunding using new technology, meeting with someone who I met on Skype and chatting and building a car, you know, pan global project. It had all of the elements that build the modern internet put into it. And I wanted to do a project that proves what you can do if you have open-minded people who will invest in something different. And I knew that it would become a platform that I could leverage in other areas of business. And I learned so much about business strategy in this project because you know what's great about projects, it's side projects, is you truncate the entire business experience that would go with building a startup or working with a company for a long time into uh, you know having a start, a middle, and an end. And so you learn so much. And so you know during that project, I, I learned a hell of a lot about um, technology, building projects together, financing them, you know, just so many things. And, um, and, you know, and then it's become, you know, one of those, you know, it's, it's, it's like a degree of sorts, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's like a, a qualification you have in the bank and you can pull out the skills that you got there and, and even legend, uh, leverage it as part of your personal brand. You know, it's, it's part of that as well. And, and that's the same for the 40 people who put in the money. All of them put it on their, on their CV and on their LinkedIn. And, you know, when they go to win clients, here's one of the projects I did. It's bloody impressive. And, and I say to them, you own it as much as I, none of us own it. We, you know. Even though me and Raoul spent did most of the work, I don't care. It's like, you know, you're part of it. Own it. Take it. It's yours. If someone says, did you do it? Say, yes, you did it. Because mm. it's like um, without all of it, there is none of it. You know, people say, oh, who did who did the most of that project? It's like saying, if you want to grow a lemon tree, what do you want? Do you want the, the sand, the soil, the sun, or the seed? Which one do you want? Well, you need all of it because without all of it, there's none of it, right? So all of the other people own that project as much as I did. Let's move forward a, a fraction more and uh, and talk about how you finished up at Gray and kind of what the impetus for that was. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's difficult when you work for someone who's a good mate. And I spent about three years there. Look, the last year I was I was trying to find a way out. I had I had that classic problem where you earn a lot of money, you know, in a, in a corporate position. It was you get stuck. Fun work. You, you kind of do. You right? get stuck you do. You and, a lot, and I'd yeah. been and I had. You know, entrepreneurial projects before, but I was in a fortunate position. You know, I owned my house, all that kind of. You know, I was financially not not in in a bad situation. So, and the reason I left was just because we weren't doing the things that we wanted to do. It was clear that the business leaders in the region weren't prepared to invest in tomorrow. It was just clear. I went to the CEO and said, "Listen, we're not going to be able to do what we want to do." And he said, "I'm sensing that too." I said, "Well, let's just configure a way where I can get out." You know. So he gave me some runway to use some VC speak there. <laughs> um, and then I just said to myself, you know what I want to do? I want to share. Because during Gray, you know what happened? I started. I used to get wheeled out everywhere at pitches, and that's where I learned how to speak really you – know, well, I shouldn't say learn how to speak really well, but that's where I You're talking I about public speaking, right? Public speaking. Yeah. But I, I really learned how to do that over 10 years, first with my startup Rentoid where I did a lot of media – and as you know, anyone knows with their startup, you've got to get out there, go to conferences, meet people, do talks, all that, because it's a way to promote what you're doing, right? Same with you, you and the podcast. Yep. And so I'd done a lot of that with Rentoid. And then with Gray, I did so much pitching. I got, you know, reasonably good at succinctly telling stories that get information and a bit of humor across. And I used to just keep getting wheeled out. I'll bring Steve in to do a talk. I'll send Steve out to this company, get him to do a talk, because we're trying to position ourselves as the tech agency. And yeah, you know, this was quite a few years ago, like seven years ago or something now. And you were like the innovative startup yeah, kind of guy. That's right. Like, I that's think right. your job title was like director was, of innovation uh, and planning. It was, yeah, strategy and innovation, yeah. And so so basically I would uh, – they would wheel me out in front of a company to do the future of whichever industry they're in. So I'd do the future of banking, the future – and I would really do my homework. And I remember my mum said to me, you can't talk about the future of banking. You don't know that. I said, yeah, I know, but I read and I researched it. 
And she said, yeah, but you, you don't know. I said, if you read and research something, how or do it? How do you know anything, right? And so because I was doing so much of learning about new industries to go in and we'd go and do cold pitches where they've already got an ad agency and I'd come in and say, let me tell you about the future of your industry. And I'd do a 45-minute presentation on history of economics and the industrial system and how it's changing and you know how accelerating technologies will disrupt certain areas and put it all together for each industry. For three years, I was doing that. And then I started getting more props for that than anything. I thought, and one day I did a speech and someone said, can you speak at my conference? How much do you charge? And I went, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, maybe and I that's could- when you were like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, maybe I can make a living out of this. But, uh, you know, I didn't want to be just someone who speaks. I thought, you know, I'll write a book about what I've learned. So I wrote The Great Fragmentation. And then having a book, that, and, and it was a good book, got translated into five languages. I was super proud of that. This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia. With Open Unis, you now have the flexibility of studying single-module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in an entire degree. So this is perfect if you're a busy professional, um, you don't have to go to night school or anything like that. This is a brand new initiative that Open Unis has created, which allows you to upskill for your current role or maybe take the first steps towards a new one. And they have a really broad range of subjects that you can learn about. Things like technology essentials for managers or financial decision making. Or perhaps if you just want to learn something new, maybe you could study cyber terrorism and information warfare or democracy and dictatorship. There's over 100 units to choose from on topics from business to economics, technology, media to law. There's so many more. So instead of going to night school, why not work in a way that's flexible for you You can work in your own time and learn about some really fascinating topics. To find out more about how to study a single unit from a leading Australian university with Open Universities Australia, head to open.edu.au. And thank you very much to Open Unis for your support of MATE. We're kind of up to today in the Steve Sammartino journey. I do want to just kind of touch on some of the things that you said there, which was you know, about being an author and writing books. So, you've written two books now. Mm. What kind of goes into putting a book together? Writing it or getting a deal? I mean, writing it. Okay. You've obviously got some really interesting and provocative philosophies on where the world is going. Yeah. So, that's a good starting point. But, like, how do you crystallize that into 20, 40,000 words and then 85 and 65. All right, sure. <laughs> I don't even know how I just pulled some numbers out of the air. Yeah, it was, it was a reasonable guess. Um, how do you kind of like convert that into something that is a book? Yeah. You know, when I first pitched, I, I asked the exact same question once they signed me up with my publisher, Wiley. This is nonfiction. So she said, you need to not just say the facts, you need to have stories that marry the facts. And then you need to write that as if five of your close friends that you know would dig it. That's what she told me. And I thought that was really good advice. And so my basic philosophy on writing is I think the best writers write the way that they speak. And I have people tell me, mate, while I was reading your book, I could hear your voice. Yeah. That's what people tell me. And that and that makes me proud because that's what a book should be. A book shouldn't be, oh, here's where I delineate my personality and get all, you know, fancy with my prose and the way that I structure sentences. No. 
the book should be what you would sound like and this is a way when I'm not in the room that you can read and hear if I were going to tell you this story. That mm. that's that's what I try and do. You know and who does so, that well? Seth Godin. Seth, he's the world's yeah. best at it. And, and in fact, I I totally adore all his work. I think yeah. he's the, you know he's one of the greatest thinkers in the world. Yeah. he really is. He should be president. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if he's got any political ambitions, Seth. If you're out there, I mean, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I feel like you could make a difference in the world. <laughs> Love Stevie. And so um and so, <laughs> like that's what I do. So when I write something, I say it in my head first. Right, I say it. I literally say it in my head, and then I write it. And uh, and both of my books I wrote in five weeks, so they took me forty years and five weeks. <laughs> wait, wait, five weeks to write? Yeah, eighty five thousand yeah, words. It's easy, man. Two thousand a day. It's nothing. It's not really. It is easy. easy. I wonder how many you words found it easy. I don't know if everyone finds it easy. It's. I, I think every, anyone could write a book because if you can speak, you can write. That's the same thing. They're the same thing. They're the same thing. And all you got to do is, if you're going to tell me a story, tell me the story, and then the story you just told me, write it down. And if you're really bad at it, writing it, record it and then write it down. Or record it and send it to someone and get them to write exactly. it down. No, and and I, there are, I imagine there are a number of authors that do that. But you know what I find when I write? I come up with new ideas as I'm writing. Yeah. Just the finger movement and reading and then it, it, it gives a new idea. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I, I do an exercise um, most mornings called free writing. And so, you, you literally just open up a blank page and you just write whatever comes to your mind. And you just you just write for as long as you need to about whatever topic is there. And and it kind of, it taps into your subconscious in a weird way. Um, uh, but I don't know if uh, writing with a, with a keyboard has that same cathartic effect. Well- for some people, I imagine it doesn't. But here's one thing I know for sure is that some guy who originally painted on cave walls or lady when the pen first came out said, you know, I just don't know if I get that same cathartic effect that I used to get when I wrote it on the cave wall, this this paper stuff. I really – so, that that's an invention. <laughs> no, really, dude, like seriously. So, what that is is us living in a technology trap, a technology trap where we let the tool define us it's easy to do. And I used to think that I couldn't write and type until I started blogging. That's when I just got good at it. And it's like anything. It's just if you get familiar with the tool, the free writing will be there because all the hands are is a translation tool. The free writing comes from the brain. It doesn't come from the fingers of gripping a pen or stroking a keyboard. The fingers don't care. The brain just wants to get it out there. I want to ask you about why you write because (laughs) (laughs) i know where you're going you're going down the luddite angle aren't you well no 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 like producing and what i've what i've written here in the in the questions are producing dead trees as content is the oldest form of communication Mm. well maybe not the oldest but a very a very old form of communication it doesn't seem very modern futurist Futurist. right no you're right you're right it doesn't seem that let me you know here's here's the best way to understand what's going to happen in the future is you take everything that exists today and remove the things that have only been around for 25 years because there's a baseline of existence that doesn't change. The longer something's been around, the higher the probability that thing will still be around in the future. I promise you, books aren't going anywhere. They are, they are one of the greatest technologies that we've ever invented. And by the way, it's not just that. It's also on Audible and it's on Kindle and it's in all of those forums. So that's just one of the forums. But as far as I understand, I think still 80% of all books are physical. And I still think that it's probably the 
better of the technologies with books that are out there? Because what we do is we let invention timelines distort relative utility. All right. What, 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 hang on, what does that mean? So we let the invention timeline distort relative utility. So invention timeline, when did it arrive? Distort, flip up our mind, utility, how useful it is. So if something's digital, I need electricity, I need a device that works. If it's a book, I can drop it, it doesn't break, the screen doesn't break. You know, I can tear out a page, I can give it to someone, it doesn't hurt my eyes, it's physical, I can, you know, it's... So we need to be wise enough to say, I still like this technology and I think this one will survive in, in perpetuity. This one might be a temporary technology. Like look at CDs. What did they have? 25-year lifespan. Gone. Faxes. You know, 23-year lifespan. Gone. So a lot of technologies, and I think the smartphone won't last that long. That's a bold statement. Yeah, of course it is. Because I think that smartphone technology is very immature. Hang and on. Th- what? Huh? What? <laughs> it's an immature technology. So the sign of a mature technology is a technology that requires less attention for it to function effectively, right? So many of the to- early tools in the industrial age required a significant amount of our personal attention to You're help talking about personal function. attention? Yes. Like, so, so you think smartphones um, require are way sucking too much. Yes. Uh, uh, human time too much. That's right. Yeah. They, they require too much personal attention. Now, the smartphone will either enter the walls or enter our body or both. That's where it's going, mm, right? With smart speakers and that's right. It's already it's already smart happening. medical devices. But that's right. That's right. And and uh, you know neural implants and so on. You know, like a neural lace. But the smartphone is an immature technology because it requires so much attention for us to be able to use it effectively. And early cars were like that. You know, they had gears, they had you know starter motors. You had to wind up the motor more and more attention. As the technology matures, it requires less personal attention to function well. Like our Smartphone is such an immature technology. It's like a baby that cries in your pocket and it requires you to take it out and stroke it when it gets upset. That's what we're talking about here. That's the level of immaturity we've got, right? So uh, as it matures, it requires less attention. You think about autonomous cars. They're going to get incredibly mature and they require less attention. Or a washing machine, you press a button and get on with your life. A fridge, Mm -hmm. I don't do anything. Electricity, it's just in the wall when we need it. But you've got to remember... Just to get an hour's worth of light before the Industrial Revolution took a day's work because you had to go and chop the wood and build the fire and then carry it back to your house to get an hour's worth of light. You know, or get the kerosene lamp. We forget that, right? And so the sign of maturity of a technology is the amount of time and attention a human is required to be around it. And the more immature a technology, the less likely it is to survive. And books are very mature technology. See how I wound that back? And that's why they will probably survive a long time. Now, it doesn't mean other technologies that supplement it won't arrive. What it means is that if it's been around, you know, more than 25 years, its chance of hanging around is far, far longer. One thing I really noticed, Steve, about you is when we speak or when you're doing a public speech or when I hear you on the radio or when you write, um, is that you have this innate ability to weave really interesting examples into the narrative that you're telling. Um, and that was kind of exemplified in the past three minutes of that story you're telling. Yeah. Is that like a skill that you've developed? Like, how did you... It, it's it's a really powerful storytelling tool and a really powerful way of, like, communicating an idea. Yeah. Where, where did you come up with well, that? You know, I, was, I don't know where I came up with it, but... Studying economics 
really makes you look at history. And the, the hack that I've got, right? This is my hack, right? I'm going to give away my secret here, everyone. You ready? Listen in. Get your ears ready. So... And that is all we have time for today. The dramatic conclusion. If you'd like to hear the rest of that story, you need to tune in later this week when we drop part two of that interview with Steve Sammartino. It will be coming out within the week, so keep your eyes peeled. Sorry to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger there, but I've, I've always wanted to do that, and this just seemed like the perfect moment. And whilst your attention is peaking, I'd like to uh, mention a few shout-outs and thank the people who helped make this episode possible. Thank you to Josh Armour from ArmorPod Productions for your editing magic. Thanks to Courtney Carmen for designing the beautiful Mate Podcast logo. The Mate theme music is by Nine Inch Nails and our ad music is by Ben Sound, all used under a Creative Commons licence. This episode was made with love and cliffhangers in my hometown, Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Speak to you later this week. That's the end of the theme music there. (laughs) Josh is probably going to leave this in the edit, hey? I probably deserve it.